Let us now go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by. Reverend Barry W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being a lawyer, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of, uh, I hope I'm getting this right, Christ? Perfect. Thank you. You know, this is three weeks in a row that you've managed to pronounce it correctly in spite of of having to deal with the fact that Christmas has passed and that would suggest that you, maybe it was the United Church of Christ but I'm glad you got it right thank you I'm really glad I'm I'm I, in fact I'm thinking of sending you a card of congratulations well maybe you could send me a copy of one of your books the book that I would like uh, you to send me a copy to Copy of a copy of might be PD and politics, the right wing assault on religious freedom. PT and politics. I could do that, or I could uh, send you the other book that I'm happy about: Goad and Government. G O D Goad and Government. That, that would be God and Government. I wrote the book. It's kind of like Bernie Sanders. He wrote. The Medicare for All bill. You wrote so the damn book. Know what it's in there, and I wrote that book, and I should know how to pronounce it. I hear now. I hear a buzzing sound on your end. Uh, do you have a Do you have a phone near the microphone? Well, do you have an electronic device near your? I do have an electronic. Well, let me turn off the electronic device. I'm skeptical that that's what you're hearing because I don't hear anything. I I have a a question regarding electronic devices and your belief in a supreme being. Correct. We had a little problem setting up the microphone, and I sensed some frustration on your end. Correct? That is correct. I was very frustrated. Okay, and and you, you didn't say... I wrote the damn bill. You didn't say damn. I noticed that. Correct. So, as a man of the cloth, do you ever turn on your appliances and scream at them and curse and blame a higher power? Do you ever say, gee, darn it? I try never to say that. But I do. I'm, you know, I'm a... I'm a faulted person. I have a person with faults. So I have been known to swear, and I have been known. I don't usually talk about God or Jesus, but I do use certain other words that are inappropriate to say, to to place into, for example, a sermon on a Sunday. Okay. Yeah, I, I do. I, I, I've been... I, I used to get angry all the time. In fact, I once got so angry that I broke a door... Uh, with my fist. Really? And, yeah. And I, uh, I once got so angry on my way to, uh, I was writing a speech to give in Iowa and I, the printer didn't work. And I hit the printer with the side of my hand and, uh, broke it. Mm. Broke the hand and or the printer? I broke both. Oh. And I threw the printer out into the backyard. Uh, my wife, who is a doctor, and uh, she came home several hours later from California, looked at my hand and said, what did you do? And I said, well, it hurts. I hit the printer. And she said, it's not more than hurt. it hurts. It's broken. And she used to be a doctor who took care of people in the golden gloves uh, championships in boxing in this district of Columbia, and she said it's it's like a boxer's hand. If you break your hand, that's exactly what it looks like. So she immediately took me to the emergency room. I had to cancel my trip to Iowa, and uh, but it's it helped to prove that it's pointless to get as angry and hit inanimate objects that are stronger than you are. <laughs> well, it sounds like the printer started it. Well, the printer did start it by breaking, by stopping, by doing something stupid. If a printer is not going to do better than, say, a quill pen, then it shouldn't, it shouldn't even exist. Yeah. 
Yeah. There are more bones in the human hand than can dance on an angel's head. Yeah, that's um, we learned that you know, in the seminary. Yeah. We did learn that. There are a lot of bones in the hand is what I'm saying. No, there are. There are yeah. a lot of bones in the hand. Yeah. And uh, there's so many, and they're little. A lot of them are small, like you could get them caught in your throat. If you happen to be a person, for example, who likes to suck on his or her hand, uh, if the skin wasn't on, you'd choke just by swallowing the number of bones that you get. Yeah. It's like a chicken. Don't eat chicken bones. You never, never feed chicken bones, for example, to a dog. Because they're very dangerous. They're more dangerous than chocolate. Never feed chocolate to a dog. Never feed chicken bones to a dog. Okay, now this is very important to me, Reverend. I'm being serious. Breaking inanimate objects. Now, you're a man of the cloth. You're a reverend. Yep. I was brought up to believe that it was okay to break a phone. My parents had a friend who was a doctor, uh-huh. And when things weren't going well, if he got a call while we were over there, he would smash the phone. And that's how he expressed his frustration with either the patients or the nurses or the hospital. And uh-huh. we'd all go, ah, ha, 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 he just broke the phone. And his wife would go get a new phone. That's how uh-huh. he expressed his frustration. And when I was living by myself in New York City before AT&T, got broken up, Yep, you could smash a phone in New York City, call mm-hmm. them, and they'd say, yeah, okay. And they, you'd go down and get a new phone, no questions asked, and they wouldn't sure. bill you. They just expected you. We're AT&T. We yep. expect you to break our phones. We're a horrible oh, monopoly. I have since learned that it's abusive to break inanimate objects, and I'm being serious, that that if you smash, say, a phone or a printer Mm -hmm. in front of somebody out of frustration, it's abusive. Do you agree with that? No. That's that's absurd. If If you get mad at something, you're doing damage to your own psyche, but you're not doing damage to anybody else to break a phone or a printer in front of them. You have never lived in California where certain people believe that that's an act of violence, that that breaking a dish, throwing a, a you know, a, 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 cup, a cup across the room at somebody's yep. head. And hitting that, no, uh, you know, breaking a dish out of frustration is, that's considered, a, you know, violence. You I, don't see it that way. No, I don't see it. I think this is the kind of thing, this is like people who are obsessed with soda straws. Because the left is supposedly terribly engaged with this, and I, of course, is very far to the left. But there are some things I frankly don't care about. And I don't care if somebody offers me a plastic straw. I don't care at all. I don't want to be asked if they want to bring me water. I just want them to bring me water. Because if they bring me water, then the chances are I'm not going to have to order anything else. And since I virtually never drink alcohol, so it means, well, what would I buy? Uh, I was out to dinner tonight. I got some of that sparkling water. cost $2. If they had just given me water, I probably wouldn't have needed the sparkling water at $2. I would have saved $2. I could have given it as a tip to the wait staff, and that would have been a more productive thing to do than to buy a $2 can of water. All right. And I think you'd agree with that. Anger. What are we supposed to do with our anger? What What were you taught? I know what you were taught in law school. You yeah, were taught so, to bill, bill for it. Of course. But what do they teach you in the seminary? They... Um, and I can't say that this issue ever came up in the seminary, 
What is about you? You can channel anger in a, in many ways. You can do something like throw a phone, break a teacup, throw something at someone's head. Uh, <laughs> that would be bad. Right. Or you could channel it in more productive ways. You could, for example, be angry at everything the president of the United States is doing, and vow that you will give money to defeat him. That you will be on a phone bank, that you will knock on doors if you're in a state where that will make a difference. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of positive things. But anger in and of itself, in my view, is not a bad thing. It's a motivator sometimes to do good things, sometimes to do bad things. But in and of itself, to be unable to look at the world or certain things or people in the world and not say, damn it, that's evil. Right. That should be dealt with. That can be a powerful motivator. And I encourage people to be motivated by whatever it is, by tr- by the trauma of seeing kids in cages, by the anger at the people and the policies that put those kids in the cages, very positive motivators to do the right thing, as Spike Lee put it. Yes, Barack Obama was no drama Obama. Everybody loved President Obama because he kept his cool, unflappable. We never saw him angry. Donald Trump, we don't really see him angry so much as hateful. Right. Bernie Sanders, he's angry. He is angry. But not hateful. No. I don't think, I think people have got to, Recognize that you can be angry at things. You can be angry at objects. You can be really, really irritated, uh, but you can't hate. You cannot hate. I do not, for all of the things that I dislike about Barack, about, I, I actually do disagree with Barack Obama about a couple of things, but you can't hate Donald Trump. You can't hate Lindsey Graham. You can't hate Ted Cruz. You can look at them in sorrow. You can look at them in anger, but you cannot hate them. Hate is a very, very bad sentiment. But what about express. Nancy Pelosi? We can hate her. Uh, I'm making if, a joke, a yeah, reference oh, to that. When she yeah. said, don't mess with me when it comes to hate. Exactly. I don't hate Donald Trump. I pray for him every night. That's well, correct. Instead and I of praying for him, how about introducing some more articles of impeachment? I'm sorry. Go ahead. What? No, I said, uh, I, I believe that she does. I mean, she is very devout. She's a very strong Catholic. She goes to mass almost every day, uh, either in Washington or back in California. And I think she's a devout and serious Roman Catholic. And so it doesn't surprise me at all when she's irritated when Trump suggests that she hates him or that she doesn't really pray for him. I think she does. Barack Obama, who, you know, one of my heroes, but with the passage of time, I'm beginning to have less respect than I had for him. Uh, Each passing day, I'm beginning to realize he's not going to fight for me. He doesn't really care about me. And that's just because he turned down one of my pitches over at Netflix. (laughs) He is... Uh, reportedly unhappy with the idea of Bernie Sanders getting the nomination and may may end up campaigning against him. Is that possible that Barack Obama would be against no. Bernie? I, I think it's, well, at what phase? I mean, if it came down to the fact that uh, Bernie Sanders appears to be on his way to getting the nomination, then I think it's conceivable that Barack Obama would do what he suggested he might do just earlier uh, in, in December of last year. He, he reportedly said, and this is reported in Politico, which is a pretty reliable source, uh, that he was worried about certain left-leading Twitter feeds, and I think he was talking about Bernie's. And then recent reports, uh, recently as today, uh, suggested that certain of his senior staff, I mean, he still has a staff, have suggested that although they wouldn't, they couldn't say that he had said it, he 
might be disappointed enough with Bernie Sanders to consider launching a Stop Bernie campaign. Just a rumor, just from his senior staff, unattributed, but as recently as today, he seems to be making this kind of noise. And he's got to be more worried now that Bernie Sanders is gaining ground again, grained nine points in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in South Carolina, in Nevada. He's now polling at about 23% in all of those early primary states. And Bernie Sanders, is, you may have seen this too, he um, has the highest favorability rating of any Democrat seeking the nomination, 75% favorability rating combined with Five million individual donors, average of $18. And in the quarter just ended a few days ago, $34.5 million, all from small donors. That's a man who uh, is on his way up, not down. Yeah. Is this a feint on Obama's part? Is he pretending to be against Bernie out of respect for Joe Biden or, you know, pretending to show respect for Joe Biden. I think Obama more than anybody knows that Joe Biden is not qualified to be president. Yeah, I don't think this is a feint. I do think that he honestly believes that Bernie Sanders cannot beat Donald Trump, that he thinks his policies are too far to the left, that he thinks Bernie Sanders' rhetoric will ultimately come back and bite him in the buttocks, and that he's he wants to avoid that. Whether he has any horse in the race other than Biden, who I agree with you, I think he, he can't honestly believe that Joe Biden will be the strongest candidate six months from now or nine months from now. But the other thing about Barack Obama that has always disturbed me uh, is that it took him forever to get to the right points, even when he got there. Remember, he was unwilling and worked hard to say, now we're not going after any of the criminal activity of the Bush years, including his reliance on uh, on torture. He wasn't going to go after anybody at all. He was just going to let bygones be bygones and get on with his positive agenda. And then, like so many people who get into uh, the presidency, they, they dawdle, as my mother used to say. It's a great word, dawdle. They dawdled over policy. And one of the things that's happening that I'm kind of obsessed with is that Religious organizations in this country now are getting money. That's bad enough, but they even get money if they discriminate in hiring under the pretext that they are more comfortable hiring people who believe what they believe. That's called discrimination. You can do that with your own money. You cannot do it with my money and your money. And Barack Obama had the opportunity within a month of taking office in his first term of fixing that, of making it clear that discriminatory hiring would lead to loss of federal funds. He didn't do it, and he didn't do it ever in those two terms in office. And that's the kind of, it. it's a kind of moral cowardice, and I resented it, and I still do. And when people have this kind of uh, luminaries, uh, luminati effect of uh, Barack Obama, look, the halos, this is a man whose halos have a few warts, in my view. Well, he had a lot of fights on the religious front, especially with Obamacare. You know, certainly Chick-fil-A, Hobby Lobby were challenging Obamacare's insistence that employees have to provide contraception. Uh, I mean, how many fights could he wage against the religious right until it, you know, until he was exhausted? (laughs) Well, yeah, let me put it this way. I think you fight everything at the same time, particularly if you know that the people in Chick-fil-A modified their policies a little bit now and Hobby Lobby that's never modified it. If they're going to hate you anyway, 
and they do hate, they do hate Barack Obama, then why don't you do the right thing that you know to be the right thing? Because I don't believe that Barack Obama for a minute thinks that if you're the Church of Feldman, just as an example, and you wanted to discriminate and say, you know, I don't, I hate hiring anybody who's not Jewish. And I certainly hate hiring those United Church of Christ people. Right. He can't believe that that's right. He can't believe that it's right morally, that it's right constitutionally. He has to well, know. Well, as a rabbi, maybe. Right. I mean, I, I don't want to hire somebody from the United Church of, is it Christ? Yeah, it's Christ. Christ to uh, be a rabbi. Yeah. Is that discrimination? No, of course not. But But remember... The, the ways you, it's so easy to get around that. You say if a person has a, is, has a, uh, uh, a theological position that, that they, that's all they do, uh, that's, then you can fund some other piece of the operation. But, but these are, this is much more serious than that. This is, this is where you say, I'm not going to hire somebody to, uh, open the envelopes, uh, in the office. I'm not going to hire somebody to serve a meal at Thanksgiving unless they are of the same religion that I am. Mm-hmm. You can't be Barack Obama and believe that that's right legally or right morally. And it irritates me that to this day he says nothing about it. And now when Donald Trump does it, turns it into policy, takes it all away as it will go uh, later uh, later this spring to the United States Supreme Court. And Obama's got nothing to, he didn't change the law. And that will be one of the arguments made when Trump and his administration utilizes the law and says, this is constitutional, even... Hello? Hello? Allowed it to stand. Yeah, you were breaking up a little. Uh, I wanted to circle... So are you. Oh, okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay, I wanted to... I can, but I I lost a little bit. You can hear me, right? Yes, now I can. Okay, I want to circle back to Bernie raising close to $45 million in the fourth quarter. But there was a piece written in the New York Times last week about Bill Barr, of all people. This is a man whose father was Jewish, but Bill Barr was raised Catholic, gave a speech at Notre Dame University, or Notre Dame? Is it Notre Dame or Notre Dame University? Uh, it's maybe affecting a French accent. It's Notre Dame, but otherwise it's Notre Dame if you're watching a football game. Okay. And it's win one for the Gippur? Yeah, the Gippur. But, yeah. Like yeah. Yom, but it's Yom Kippur. It's Yom Kippur. Okay. Win one for the Gippur. Win one for the Gippur. Okay. I, so yeah. this piece uh, focused on... Barr's earlier writings, plus this infamous speech that he gave earlier this year at Notre Dame, Notre Dame, apparently he believes in more than just unitary power of the executive branch. He believes almost in, I hate to say a theocracy, but he's a borderline dominionist. He certainly is, and of course, this is the kind of thing that should have come out in much more detail during his confirmation hearing, and and it didn't, because uh, there's a a sense that Democrats have that they cannot talk about any religious aspect of anything, because then they will be considered anti-religious bigots. They will be considered Jesus haters. But But Barr basically believes that there's a secular menace a secular virus in the culture today and that if we got back to traditional religious views and let go of this secularism the country would be better off we'd have new print better principles and we wouldn't have the troubles we have and uh this is a uh, something i know that al franken you know kn- knew something about this when he was still in the senate and uh, he raised this with jeff sessions and and uh i think he was gone by the time Barr was about to take over but he um but they don't do that they they don't talk about it i mean i remember uh, being on uh, a bill o'reilly show a couple times just on this issue when democrats would simply say of a candidate for 
the Supreme Court, can you separate your religious beliefs from the constitutional principles that you must uphold? Just to ask that question, not to suggest that they couldn't, just to, and they always accepted the answer, of course I can, but just to raise the question was an act of anti-Christian bigotry in the view of Bill O'Reilly and whatever character I was on uh, who also shared that view. That's astonishing. If you can't even ask questions to just at least get a nominal answer, a respectful, I can, I can separate the two. If so, you can't raise those questions, what the hell are you supposed to be doing? Bill Barr, our attorney general, apparently believes that the Christian faith is under siege, that there's an issue of religious liberty, so that when yeah. homosexuals are given freedom, it's at the expense of the freedom of Christians. Yes, he does. He does, does he, and he, that. So does he really believe that Christians are under attack, or he just is homophobic and needed to find some uh, religious doctrine and legal doctrine to bolster up his hatred, make it seem more legitimate? No, I, I believe it's a little of both. I think he's very much anti-gay, but I think he's also a true believer in the idea that there is a war on Christianity. And you see that, of course, with Trump when he talks about, as he did uh, over the last few weeks, how he's brought back the right to say Merry Christmas. And as well as the N-word. Deal. We can say Merry Christmas and the N-word, thanks can- to... And we can say that, but not in the same sentence. No. You have to make it in two sentences. But the absurdity, I mean, I literally cannot think, I can't imagine, if I hadn't spent so much time with people like Bill O'Reilly and uh, all of these religious right characters I used to be on television and radio with, I wouldn't have believed it either. Like, how how can they be serious if there's a war against the Christian faith? And then they'll, they'll point to something, an anecdote, and they'll say, well, there was a television show, and it made a disrespectful comment about a priest. Hmm. So what? So the, and then they'll say, well, but there's another program, as if, you know, you come somehow you have two anecdotes and that becomes evidence of the proposition that there's a war on Christianity. It is so absurd. It is ludicrous. But do you do I believe Bill Barr thinks it's true? Absolutely. He has become convinced, not just for his own political interests, but he's convinced Christianity is, in fact, under siege. And it's under siege by secularists who don't believe that the Bible or other religious principles should be the basis of law. He does. Christianity has does. its roots in being under siege, right? They had to practice the faith in the catacombs. They were persecuted. I, I believe the, go- the people who wrote the Gospels were persecuted, correct? They were persecuted, and certainly the early church was prosecuted. I remember uh, speaking, I was doing a debate once at the uh, National Religious Broadcasters Convention. I used to do that every couple of years. And I made a, a statement. I said, you know, when you talk about persecution, because there's some topic about, you know, is Christianity under fire? And I said, if you want to see a church under fire, a Christian church under fire, go to China, where if you want to go to a home church, which is the major way in which Christians practice in China, you can get beaten up by thugs on the way to the home church. So that became then a big story in all these religious right publications. Lynn says, it's got to get as bad as it is in China before we ought to worry about Christian oppression in the United States. Right. Somehow. Taken out of context. Well, well they do that with the Bible. Why wouldn't they do that with Barry Lynn? They take everything out of context. But is, is persecution, is a persecution complex baked in to the theology? Do, do they have to feel, do Christians, or certainly the evangelicals and the fundamentalists, do they have to feel they're under attack at all times in order to tap into 
what they think this religion is about? Is that why we I see? Think, I don't think they have to, but I think it, they, they do find it convenient. And they do believe it. I mean, people all the time, they say, well, did Jerry Falwell believe all the stuff he said? And I always answer it the same way. I believe he did. This is, I don't think it was just political. It was There was a political patina to it. But no, he believed it. If you're a gay person in America, you are a threat to the underlying belief that God created two genders, one male, one female, and that's it. So they There's genuinely nothing. feel, you know, the, the members of the LGBTQ community feel they're under attack by Christians. Women, Planned Parenthood, abortion doctors feel... They're under attack by Christians. Christians feel genuinely that they're under attack by abortion doctors and the LGBTQ community trying to convert their kids and turn them queer, right? They believe that there are forces. Yeah, but I don't. I don't want you to sound like Chuck Todd here. Um, there's a false equivalency. I mean, right. there's evidence. There's all kinds of evidence about hate crimes against the LGBTQ community. All kinds of evidence about there's murder of abortion providing doctors. When it comes to Christian oppression, there's nothing except we don't like it. Uh, we feel uncomfortable because of something we saw in the movies or we saw on television. It proves that Hollywood is right there with all the secularists in government, and they're, they're going to hurt our principles. Even if we can't define it, even if we can't demonstrate exactly what it is right now, trust us, they say, it will get nothing but worse. Nothing but worse. And the fringy ideas that used to be, I used to think were kind of goofy ideas, now start to appear within what I'd call the mainstream of conservative evangelical Christianity. And that is something I did not expect to happen. What do you mean? When people stop, well, because, well, let me give you an example of today. I mean, if, you know, I try uh, to find a kind of a right wing nut of the week to talk to you about. Now, here's something. Let me, Liz Crokin. Who is that? Well, she's a writer. She wrote one book that someone's actually read. She posted a video on New Year's Eve in which she claimed that Tom Hanks, the wonderful Tom Hanks, would soon be arrested for pedophilia. Now, this is not, not a new charge. This is the QAnon, QAnon charge that there's some. QAnon, and she was very, she was very much a part of promoting QAnon. And then a few months ago, she said, "I'm really tired of defending them all the time. I may sever my ties with that, but on New Year's Eve, it's clear." She's not severing the ties. And it's not just pedophilia. It's satanic pedophilia. So you go, well, wait a minute. What could possibly demonstrate that Tom Hanks, who, whom I met a couple times, is a, is a very wonderful guy? Why would anybody think he was a satanic pedophile? And they do have answers. Uh, one of uh, Tom Hanks' early movies was called The Man with One Red Hat, with one red shoe. Red shoes are symbolic to occultists because Satanists make red leather shoes out of the skin of dead babies. That's proof number one. Hmm. Proof number two, remember the movie Big? Yes. Okay, little child in a grown man's body. So uh, to... Liz Crokin, that just demonstrates, since he ends up having sex with a grown woman, that that's a kind of a pay-on to pedophilia also. Opus Dei? Wasn't there, what was the movie that he made, Angels and Demons? Or uh, Yeah, Angels and Demons. By the way, Bill but, Barr is Opus D or Day. Opus Dei. Yeah. Yeah. Hope his day is, uh, we could talk about that forever, but I mean, it's a very, in my judgment, very dangerous mix of Catholic theology and politics. And a lot of people 
very high up in administrations that contain uh, Catholic leaders, um, a lot of people in Opus Dei who are connected to those institutions and to that those government agencies. And they are, um, I, I'm sure some of your listeners have seen The Family, which is about a kind of Protestant version of uh, extreme connection between uh, your love of Jesus and your sense that uh, Jesus will and should be the prevailing leader of every country on the face of the earth, including the United States. And there is a very similar movement within the Catholic Church. And these are not fringe groups. And people say, well, who? I haven't even heard of them. That doesn't matter. You're not necessarily supposed to have heard of them, but you are supposed to recognize that no matter how ridiculous to perhaps Barry Lynn and David Feldman, some of these arguments are about satanic pedophilia. Remember that uh, at the Comet Pizza Shop here in Washington, there was a large number of people who to this day believe there was a pedophilia ring operating out of the basement of Comet Pizza. This became, it was on Sean Hannity's show. I thought, this is the last straw. Nobody will believe that. But they did believe it, and eventually some guy with a gun went into Comet Pete's, I believe on a Sunday afternoon, and shot up the place. Didn't kill anyone, but shot up the place because he wanted to save the children who he thought were locked in the basement. Yeah. And then Jeffrey Epstein dies mysteriously. Yep. And he ran a child prostitution ring. Certainly a lot, looks a lot of higher ups, a lot sure. of people from the royal family to former presidents flying on the Lolita Express. He has a pedo island where he took the rich and powerful to do whatever they wanted to underage girls. Yep. Uh, so not that Tom Hanks is a pedophile. That's absurd. But when you have a, a Justice Department that doesn't prosecute Jeffrey Epstein, I think it it opens people's minds to the possibility that Podesta and Clinton are running a child prostitution ring at Comet Pizza. I mean, it's it's not that far. F- I mean, it's not true. But when you look yeah. at the Jeffrey Epstein story, it's not that far-fetched, is it? Well, it depends what your, uh, how you apply logic to facts that may or may not have any connection to each other. But it is a slippery slope. It's easy to do. That's why I think it's so dangerous. Because if you start out with a certain premise and you carry it to its limit, then, of course, you do end up believing that there's a pedophile ring in the basement of Comet Pizza, which, by the way, doesn't have very good pizza either. But, 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 but you haven't eaten there. If you come to Washington, uh, I will not take you there. I'll take you to a much better pizza place. Pizza only. Okay, but. You know, the Jeffrey Epstein story has magically disappeared here in the United States. That's still alive in Great Britain because of Prince Andrew, but we've moved on from that. And Ghislaine Maxwell, his pimp, yep. or whatever yep. she was, supposedly thinks she can stay alive and won't be prosecuted because she has the goods on some really powerful men. Again, all the people who claim the you know these pedo rings, they're insane. They're all insane. Uh, Mike Cernovich, that whole group. Sure. But they're partly right. Aren't they? Well, they're going to well, they're going to be a lot of civil lawsuits that, 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 by the way, take years and years to ever reach uh, fruition. But some of the women who were victims of Epstein will sue, and I would predict will sue successfully, and obtain a piece, probably a, a small piece, of the Epstein estate. 
I mean, everything's being held up. You don't, you don't see uh, money from Epstein going to uh, friends, relatives, because it's all being held up. And some of these victims of his sex trafficking will get money. But get it's, money, it's kind of like but, what happened. But, but in, in probably in civil suits, but not criminal ones. Look at Weinstein. Didn't Harvey settle f- like something like $25 million? Wasn't there some payout to all these women? There was. It was about $25 million, but that's not the end of it because everybody's not a, a, every victim is not a part of that settlement. And he's still in prison. He did try to get out, uh, earlier, uh, in the holiday period. Uh, the judge denied release in, in spite of the fact that, uh, Harvey looked like he had, uh, you know, could barely walk into the courtroom. Yeah. But uh, he's still there, and he should be there. Yeah. Because, but I do think, I mean, I think you're right that these, when when you start to take one tiny little thing, when I was doing radio with Pat Buchanan, he did not believe that the Nazis exterminated 6 million Jews. He didn't believe it. And I'd go, Pat, what are you talking about? Why are you writing a column like this? And he'd go, and he'd t- take one tiny fringe factoid, and he'd build an entire and elaborate claim that the Nazis could not possibly have killed that many Jews. And Pat Buchanan is no dummy. I not mean, at Pat all. Buchanan is not. Uh, no. A, yeah. That's but, shocking. But that, he... But yeah. he he would take these, uh, that guy, Demjanjuk, he yeah. used to constantly want, he should be freed. He couldn't have possibly been at the concentration camp. And we would do hour shows about this. And he would, he was a true believer that Demjanjuk uh, should have uh, been allowed to uh, just go free, that he couldn't have been a, a guard at, uh, at a concentration camp. But here's a guy who other, in other ways, very smart, very principled. That is to say, he would take principles, many of which, most of which I disagreed with, but he would extend the principle to cover the argument. But then he'd have these ridiculous arguments about uh, something like the Holocaust couldn't have been that bad. I mean, this is the guy who invented the wall. The the wall, that's right. He invented the wall to keep the Mexicans out. This is a guy who grew up, I believe, in Washington, D.C. His parents were isolationists. They, yep. they, America Firsters, Lindbergh, they were against World War II. And, you know, it's that unshakable fascist upbringing. I, you know, probably. Uh, anti-Semitism cloaked in what he believes to be intellectual honesty. But he did have uh, a series of anti-Semitic columns in the lead-up to the first Iraq war. I remember Correct. his writing about the, the the drumbeat of the Jewish lobbyists trying yep. to stir up another war. Uh, he's not... He's brilliant... But, you know, he came up with, I believe, he came up with Nixon's Southern strategy, didn't he? I believe he did. And, you know, he talked about spear chuckers and coming into D.C. And then he said, well, I, and of course, I didn't mean black people. I meant something. Right. But, but he would use this rhetoric. And I'm, I'm, I feel pretty confident, having spent a year and a half every day on the radio with him, that he uh, he knew exactly what he was doing and what buttons he was pushing when he would use rhetoric like spear chuckers. And he wrote a book uh, just a few years ago arguing that the United States should never have entered World War II. Which is He's a pretty, it's a brilliant idea. He says that had we not entered World War II, fewer people would have died. The Holocaust was accelerated by America entering World War II, and that by entering World War II, we traded basically Hitler for Stalin, that that Europe ended up under the yoke of Stalin instead of Hitler. He says basically all we did in World War II was free France and 
they can't even thank us for that. It's a pretty interesting theory, isn't it? Indeed. That's an interesting theory, but there's absolutely, I have no, no serious historian who goes as far as Pat with the very argument you've just made. I mean, they don't believe that. I mean, they talk about the famines and Stalin and the famines and look at the millions of people who died under those circumstances, but you can't run history backwards and try to figure out what the result would be because there are so many factors that come into play. And But Pat does believe, he, he, and part of it, remember, goes back to what I said a few minutes ago, he doesn't believe that the Holocaust, in fact, killed that many people, that this is part of a kind of Jewish conspiracy to expand the damage, to talk about uh, the numbers in a much elevated form just so that they can gain sympathy for their positions today. I mean, this is really dangerous stuff. Then why did it take so long for him to get banned from MSNBC? Why, why was he in business for so long? Was it just because he's well, brilliant? Because he, was... he is brilliant. Well, no, he's he's awfully good on television. I mean, he he says these things. Uh, as we know, what matters on television is generally: can you speak in complete sentences? Can you make people continue to listen? And they believed on MSNBC that people were going to watch him in the same reason that these characters on CNN continue to have on Kellyanne Fitzpatrick, Anthony Scaramucci. These are people who have no ideas, no information, but they figure that people will watch them because they're going to say something outrageous. Yeah. It's the same reason CNN always broke away from whatever they were covering during the Trump campaign to go to his at campaign events and cover them gavel to gavel or nutty introduction to goofy conclusion because they thought something's going to happen. What if he says something or somebody gets out of hand and he goes, uh, can't you just beat up him? Right. Which, of course, he did say a couple of times. Because if you don't get that live, then you have to depend on airing it after the fact or using some tape from somebody else. You've got to cover it live. That's what they said. And they, and they did, and they helped to elect the, a, a candidate, which I, to this day, believe CNN is happy, very happy that Trump was elected, and probably they'd be okay if he was reelected next year, yeah. this year. Running it live yeah. is easier than summing up what happened. That's reported. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Uh, let me ask you about Christianity. Is yes. Christianity on the decline in the United States? Are fewer and fewer people going to church? Because we're yes. they are. Yeah, absolutely. And do fewer people identify themselves as Christians in America? Yeah, they do. And uh, recent recent polling suggests that in 2019, the number of people who identify as Christians was probably at its lowest point in modern history. And the number of people who identify not necessarily as atheists, but as uh, kind of a non-church-going, uh, vaguely spiritual people, has increased dramatically. You it's wouldn't know that by listening to our political discourse. You would assume that we're a Judeo-Christian nation. You certainly would. And, of course, you don't hear on television anybody. I think I mentioned to you I have a friend who's now a minister, but she used to run SECUS, the, the Sex Information and Education Council of the United States. She was on television all the time. You don't ever see her on television now. It's not that she doesn't know the stuff that she knew then, but it's this uh, fact that she is a minister that makes people go, well, we can't book her. When I used to do O'Reilly's show, he only wanted me on because I was a minister. He, In fact, people would promote him, uh, promote ideas. Why don't you have Barry on to talk about the Supreme Court case or that? And he'd say, no, no, no. I only want to talk about him, about religion to him. That's okay. all. But most people, most people, they don't want to talk about religion. They don't 
want to talk about it, and they sure as heck don't want to talk about it if the religion you're promoting is a progressive version of Christianity, a, a progressive set of ideas within the Catholic Church. They don't want to hear that. So, Never. So fewer and fewer people are going to church in the United States. Yep. Fewer and fewer people are identifying themselves as Christians. The people like Pat Robertson and uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham take that as evidence of Christianity being under attack. Not that they're selling a faulty product. Their product is being attacked by secular forces. I think it's I think it's a little more complicated because they would say of a denomination like the United Church of Christ, which is losing members, they'd say, look, when these people decide to uh, talk about religion and combine it with progressive political ideas, people don't go anymore. Okay. If you look at the but if you look at so they wouldn't say that the decline in what used to be called mainstream Protestant churches was not caused because of some secular influence. It's caused by the fact that those of us in those churches do have what we think are progressive Christian ideas. But they would say, look at the mega churches, and you can go to parts of this country where everything that I've just been talking about, the decline of churches, they're it's not declining there. It's not declining in parts of Louisiana, parts of Texas, even parts of Ohio. There are clusters of people that get their kids to go right away. They In, in uh, Baptist circles, there's something called a cradle roll, which used to be in all Baptist churches, where as soon as a kid was born, she or he would be enrolled as a Baptist. This is what they do. Mega churches do not just provide spiritual solace. They provide a place to go for your kids after school. They can play basketball. You want them to eat something. They got salad bars and some. Hello? Are you there? They have, you said they said salad bars. I am here. You said they have salad bars. They have salad bars. In other words, they have the whole thing. That right. Everything you, your family could possibly need, they will provide. And then, of course, what they teach in their religious schools or Sunday schools or is all kinds of right-wing nonsense and not right-wing political nonsense and also a theology that managed to avoid most of the things that Jesus actually talked about and, in fact, goes back to the same quotes. I've talked about them before. Uh, you look at the Levitical texts, what you're not supposed to do and what you should do. And then when somebody says, but wait a minute, didn't Jesus change that? And then they'll quote from one of the Gospels and say, uh, Jesus said, I have come not to change one word of the law. Right. And I used to do radio for about two years with a guy who literally was a believer in Christian Reconstructionism. So he would never eat shellfish. He would never eat pork. He would never wear clothing of mixed fabric. And he thought that if you had a recalcitrant child, he probably should put him to death. Yeah. Uh, religious... Uh, awakenings. There have been two awakenings in American history. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's what most people would say. Yeah, and do they tend to be conservative? They do they tend to drift oh, away yes. from the teachings of Christ? And yeah, they well, they tend to be. Conservative, not necessarily in the same way that uh, religious right bigots are ultra-conservative now. But, yeah, there's a con it's a conserving tendency. And, uh, and there are plenty of people who would like to bring a third great awakening. They thought it was coming during the Reagan years. It didn't. And now they think it's coming now. I mean, there, there are people, including that one in the White House, who's you and I are paying for, who believes that if you say anything wrong or say anything bad about Donald Trump, you're effectively insulting Jesus. Okay. It's the same. It's the same. Yeah. 
it's it's just so bizarre to even talk about this because people go, I, I just can't believe this is happening. But look at the number of people who just a few days ago sent a letter, uh, which they can do, uh, 239 representatives, including 39 or 40 senators, asking the Supreme Court to overrule Roe versus Wade. Right. Yeah. And that's, Seven, you know, the Hun- of, yeah, somebody like Huckabee. Americans don't want to do that. 239 of our elected officials believe it has to happen. Right. Christianity is under attack in Syria, Egypt, Iraq. There sure. is a legitimate claim that, that Christians aren't safe everywhere around the world, right? That, that is very correct. And, uh, you know, when there's a... Um, some years ago, they created a position in the State Department, an ambassador at large for religious liberty. Yeah. And in the Obama years, it, it was actually a very progressive rabbi. Brownback. Did they give it to Brownback from Kansas? Brownback, not, neither my friend nor a progressive rabbi. But uh, it started out... I, I never was completely convinced it was a great idea. And now, of course, it's been turned into a, a ridiculous example of how uh, religious rightism is helping to guide foreign policy of the United States. Yeah, it's it's now it's not just neutral now. Now it's downright dangerous. Yeah, Sam. I think Sam Brownback, the failed governor of Kansas, the homophobe. Yep. Got that position under Trump. Before you go, and once again, yes. thank you, Reverend. This is always so great having you on the show. It really is. Thanks. Uh, and I wish it weren't so great. I wish my listeners didn't yeah. love you as much uh, well. as they do because uh, I need you, and I, and I don't like ah. to be in a position like that. You've <laughs> seen two movies that you wanted to yeah. talk about, Bombshell. And A yep. Hidden Life. Tell me about Bombshell. Bombshell, of course, is the glorious reminder of just how corrupt the Fox News Channel was, how bad Roger Ailes was, how grotesque uh, Bill O'Reilly was when it came to sexual harassment and worse. And, I, I mean, I think most people that see Bombshell uh are impressed with it because there are three marvelous women actors, one playing Gretchen Carlson, one playing Megan uh, Kelly, and, and one playing a fictitious third blonde woman who is trying to get a position on air at Fox News. And I think there's been some criticism of Bombshell because it makes Megan Kelly look too much like a hero, mm-hmm. which it does. Uh, there are references to it. It doesn't go into the reasons that she was fired from NBC, which have to do with race also. Yeah. But it does have two little things. You could, you know, if you went out to buy a Coke or go to the bathroom, you could miss both of them. But about her comment that not only was Jesus white, but that Santa Claus was white. And yeah. people should not have a black Santa Claus because it's not real. He's not real unless he's white. And this is, I mean, it's racist. You can't be this brain dead. She went to law school. She went to a good law school. I never, every time I was on with her, I thought she's just not that bright a person. But you can't honestly think you're going to go to the mat, even on Fox News, proclaiming, that Santa Claus is white. And, of course, when she gets to NBC, she gets fired because she thinks, well, wait a minute, blackface? Why blackface? That's part of a Halloween costume. And she said, well, I mean, it's it's right as long as you're portraying a character. Right, right. <laughs> portraying a character. Well, that pretty much ended her career at NBC. She, was supposed, she said about a year ago that she was going back on television. Uh, I have not seen her back on television. I don't think she's gotten back on television. Uh, but she got an enormous settlement uh, when she left when she left Fox. And uh, she's, um, I'm sure she's happy 
with that. She doesn't need to get back on television. Now, there's a movie about conscientious objectors. And it raises, in some ways, the same kind of question. I'm curious what you think about this. Uh, Terrence Malick used to make good movies back when he was making movies in the 70s. Then he made some real bombs. But now he's made a movie. It's three hours long. It's called A Hidden Life, and it's the story of Franz Jägerstatter, who refused to pledge allegiance to Hitler, and bad things happened to him. And uh, you can feel it, and you can see it, and it lasts three hours. The question that's raised by the movie is, since it's called A Hidden Life, what if you do good things for your own peculiar reasons or idiosyncratic reasons. And you don't want to become a hero. You don't want to spread the message. Uh, Jägerstetter never spread this to anybody. I mean, he talked to people at his little village. But the question, I guess, is does he have an obligation to do more than be sure he's right? And it's the same question, ironically, that Megyn Kelly is asked at one point in the movie where this this composite figure, this young woman, says, why didn't you warn me about him, talking about Roger Ailes? And Megyn Kelly basically says, well, I mean, I had my own issues, and I, I mean, I wanted my job, and, and then eventually kind of walks away from the conversation. And the question with both of these is, what's the moral responsibility that people have to talk about the things that they know are wrong and to do something about it. And I I don't think either of these movies accurately answers the question, what do you think? If you knew that something was wrong in some entity that of which you were a part, do you have an obligation not just to be irritated yourself or do something, chat with your closest friends about it, do you have an obligation to be more public if you know that something is wrong that is happening around you? And both of these movies raise the question, but in my judgment, don't satisfactorily answer it. Yeah, I remember, you, you know, like Gretchen Carlson, who sued Roger Ailes. Yep. She was parroting right-wing talking points until those right-wing talking points blew up in her face. It seems that with Republicans... They're perfectly fine with horrible things until their son is gay, till their daughter needs an abortion, till they're the victim of a sexual harassment predator case or, you know, sure. or, or fracking water ends up in, in, in their tap. Uh, yeah. it's, that seems to be the Republican way of life. Uh, but what did Martin Luther King say about people who remain silent? Well, in some ways, uh, remaining silent is as bad as committing the act itself. Yeah. And I, I kind of, uh, I must say I agree with that point. The, when you, when you start with a proposition that you have an obligation to somebody other than yourself, when you're in a closely knit place like Fox News Channel is, and it's a pathetic place. I mean, I spent so much time over there, and I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed when I look back at it that I bothered to spend some. There were very few liberals that went on. Uh, Ellie Smeal from the Feminist Majority Foundation and I, Robert Reich, uh, the economist, we would go on, and they would, they would have enormous difficulty getting anyone. The ACLU, during the time I was there, uh it didn't overlap a lot with the Fox News Channel, but they would not have their people go on there. They would never go on Fox News. But Ellie and I and and Bob, uh, we we would go on, and, the, and I guess under the assumption, I mean, the assumption is that maybe there's one person who you're going to kind of ring some bell, and maybe it's kind of like speaking to people over thanksgiving dinner maybe there's just one small thing that you can say that will start them thinking and then maybe if they hear it again they'll go you know i i heard that once before and maybe i should change maybe i should rethink it yeah but it usually just ends up providing you know cosmetic cover 
for them. Oh, look, look, we have somebody sure. from the left. Look how fair and balanced exactly. we are. Well, exactly. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn has been joining us once again. It's always a pleasure to have this great Same man here. on our show. From 1992 to November of 2017, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn was the Executive Director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He is a lawyer and an ordained minister, and you can buy two of his books. Or How many books have you written? Several. They're all on Amazon. Right? I think I think there's probably three books on Amazon that you are still in print. Petey and Politics. Petey and Piety. Good in Government, or God in Government, 25 Years of Fighting for <laughs> Equality, Secularism and Freedom of Conscience, and follow him over at Twitter. I believe it's Barry W. Lynn. At Twitter? Yeah, I think it's, um, uh, <laughs> you know, my little computer, quasi-literate. One is Reverend, Real Reverend Barry. I think that's Instagram. And then Barry W. Lynn on uh, Facebook. Fantastic. I, I do, I, I've been getting a lot of uh, requests for friends on Facebook. And if they identify, if they admit that you're a friend of theirs, then I always accept them as a friend of mine. Okay. Stay on the line for one second. All right. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. <laughs> 